out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastwood. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it's going to be the turn of the Nivens from Northumberland, who, um, yes, I just spoke to their lead singer and one of the songwriters, Peter Martin, to find out more about life, love, poetry and all the other groovy stuff. Anyway, they have just had a new single released on Optic Nerve Records, which is, um, yes, based in Preston. They've been putting out some amazing bits and pieces. Um, So do check out Optic Nerve Records, Preston. It's all there and much, much more. But anyway, this is going to be the interview, casual chat, really, with Peter Martin from The Nivins. Um, And uh, after, yes, several minutes of casual chat, as I just said, uh, which gets edited out because it's a bit boring, unlike the rest of this. Um, yes, we got down to that uh, exciting subject that was how this release came about, considering the single was recorded in the late 80s. Peter, tell us how it all happened. Tell us now. Um, it was quite fun. I was, did an interview the other week for a, a, like an, um, an online thing, so it was like a written one. So I was just like explaining it to them. Um, I used to um, subscribe to the the optic nerve singles right um, the, there was something on twitter about subscribing to the next one and i just like cheekily sent a message saying i'll i'll subscribe if you if the nivens are included <laughs> um, and i just thought they'd just like ignore it or not even know who the nivens were or whatever and i got a message back almost instantly saying oh we would love to we love that single and would love to put it out and i was like oh my god so it, it was it, it started off as kind of like a joke almost, um, but then then they, they went for it, so it was really good. I mean, I was just surprised. That, I mean, obviously, I've not met them personally. I've just done everything over the internet, but they obviously must be massive fans of all those kind of bands because obviously they had heard of us, they knew the song, they knew the single, et cetera, et cetera, and they were quite happy to do it. Yes, um, well, I know. And the great thing with the the, the, the label <clears throat> is that they've been, I mean, they've even, I say even, but they've had the Sidleys and other bands who have never, I don't think even put an album out, but they've managed to conjure up or, or collect enough to do a compilation 20 years later by one of those obscure labels like, I don't know, Fire Station Records or somebody like that. So. Yeah. It is great that there's these enthusiasts who 30 or 40 years later think, oh, actually, I know, it's a really good idea. Good idea. We'll, um, we'll sort of press up these singles. Because I know, I know, I mean, they've done recently, they've done one with Bob, and then there's other bands who I haven't even heard of, which is like, oh, there you go, the Magic Roundabout. Who the hell were they? But they're from Manchester. Yeah. Um, they did it. So can you remember, because this was a record that was released in, was it 1989, wasn't it? It came out, um, yeah, beginning of 1989, January 1989. And can you remember much about the process? Because I'll confess, I think that single is one of the greatest indie singles of all time. I mean, lyrically, musically, it's just, it is up there. It is kind of perfection. So I just wondered, when you wrote it, what was the moment? Um, it was the guitarist Belly who wrote it, um, and I remember because we we, we kind of gone from being lots of like really throwaway indie stuff on our first demo. Things like I don't know if you've heard the track uh, Lucas Eight Orgasms, which no. was 
since it was on the fire station vinyl the lad from the from germany when when he reissued the fire station compilation he wanted to put something different on and he actually put lucas here orgasms on it i mean it's it's kind of like it's awful but it's kind of like quite funny because it's almost like uh it was like you know on tape by the poo sticks yes it was kind of like that long before the poo sticks did it it was you know all to do with like just daft indie things and uh name dropping different bands that the pastels drummer and stuff like this um and we just stopped doing that we stopped doing those kind of songs for, from our first few gigs and then we started writing slight like more serious stuff and yesterday was one of the first kind of songs that came out of that second spell mm. um, and just obviously we realized it was I mean, arguably our best song. So, you know, you kind of know that a song's better than the other songs you've got. Um, so when we had the chance to do the single, it was obviously the um, it was the, the obvious choice to be on the first single. Yes. And what was the... Um, so did you write the lyrics to it? I wrote some of the... I remember we, we Belly kind of had it almost like fully formed when he'd done it. But we did, I remember like working on some of the lyrics and we changed some of the lines and moved bits about. Because it used to be that Belly wrote the tunes and then I would write all the lyrics. And then as it progressed, um, Belly used to come with more lyrics like that fitted the song, almost like fully formed. So he became and was the, the main songwriter. Uh, he'd always done the tunes, but then he did a lot of the lyrics as well. Yes, because uh, this is on... Always, the... Sorry, after sorry. You... Well, we always, we've, we've always done it where we credit everybody and just say it was written by the Nivens. Um, and some songs were, and some songs were like, somebody did the lyrics and somebody did the tunes, but mostly Belly did most of it, really. Right, um, right. He was the musical. And just give us an idea, because Wush Records, again, has got a bit of a cult status, not quite in the same league as Sarah Records, but who were whoosh because um there was was there a fanzine as well yeah there was um it started quite funny enough it started by somebody who had then had nothing to do with it there was a a lad who came to newcastle university and i think he was from somewhere down south london area and he had some money i don't know where he got the money yet. i think stephen joyce said that he'd inherited the money um so he was just gonna. He basically was just gonna put all these bands on, and he put a big poster up with Volume Records, and he had, I think the first bands he had were Jesse Garin, the Fizz Bombs, the Clouds, and he put this big poster up. Anybody uh, who wanted to help or knew anything about putting bands on at this swoosh club that he was going to start at the Broken Doll, and I rang him up, and I think I, I was the only person in Newcastle who like knew who these bands were. And I rang him up and I said, oh, you know, we, we'd be willing to support and help, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, he paid loads of money for each of the bands and, and we did the gigs. And, uh, and the only people who turned up really were people who knew the Nivens. Um, and I think he lost most of his money, but we, it was, I don't think he cared. I think he just, he, he liked these bands. So he was just putting them on for his own satisfaction, really, to see these bands. Um, and Stephen Joyce obviously came to all those gigs and knew us because we were friends and just thought he could carry it on and do it like properly. So when the lad ran out of money, which I think he did after about three or four gigs, and I don't think he was that bothered anyway, uh, Stephen Joyce took it over but kept the name The Whoosh Club right. and started doing doing bands all the time, like on a regular basis. 
And then the money he made from the gigs uh, went into the fanzine and the flexi. And then they, that successful and it sold out and obviously had more money to then make the vinyl records. Yeah. Um, and it was and it was good. I mean, it was as as you said, it was never like up there with Sarah, who like you know now is a kind of massive indie name. But it was it was quite a, a decent label and it had some good. I mean, I was listening to the compilation that uh, Jigsaw Records did from America. Oh yes, there's a compilation. Yeah, ten little tracks or ten little something that's called, um, and it's quite good. There's some really good bands on it. Yeah, I know. I mean, it's kind of interesting. I suppose one thing I've noticed from from doing this show and sort of looking back, because actually there's a lot of bands I completely missed the first time around, mainly because you just couldn't go, oh, I'll go and stream it on and have a quick listen on whatever social media platform site you use. So sometimes it was really difficult. And then each year or each week, there seemed to be all these records that come through and you just had to pick one or you had your favourite and then, you know, loads of other things just whizzed by and you thought, oh, well, never mind. And 30 years later, I've sort of gone back, not in a rose-tinted sunglasses sort of way, well, it might have been, but, yeah, just kind of hearing bands who I miss, like Easter House, which I shouldn't, you know, admit, but I, I didn't hear them the first time and I've heard them kind of a couple of years ago and thought, my God, this is, they're brilliant. How did, how did yeah. you... Miss that, but you know, it's like, well, you read a review in the NME and then thought, well, do I trust that journalist? No, I don't, because I've, <laughs> I've made that mistake before. And then, you know, you, you, you know, I got my obsession with it, like the Smiths and the Triffids and all those kind of bands, the June Brides um, and things that John Peel was playing, like the Bundu Boys as well. And, and then, you know, it's just what you do, isn't it? So it's kind of strange really at that time. So were you, I mean, I was born 1964, so the 80s was very much my decade. Were you also around and, and you know, on the scene in the 80s? Well, I was born in 66, so... Pretty close, really. Let's, let's yeah. face it, that was very close. So you were definitely aware of the explosion that was... I call it an explosion, but, you know, when the Smiths came along in 83, they felt like a moment, that a new chapter had appeared. Well, we were all big, we were massive, like all big Smiths fans and used to go and, and that's how we met Stephen Joyce. Because um, even though he was from Newcastle, we actually met Edinburgh on the Meters Murder Tour. We went to Edinburgh to see the Smiths um, and we met him by accident. He was in the car park waiting for, we were like waiting for the sound check and he was there. We were talking to him and just kind of saw him and then few weeks later, we went to the riverside in Newcastle to see the fall. And we were like, that's that lad who was in Edinburgh. And so we started to talk to him and realised he was from Newcastle and we became friends and he did all the... Uh, he was eventually the, the person who formed and or did the Douche Club yes. for years. But funny enough, who supported the Smiths at Edinburgh Playhouse that day? Easter oh. House. Oh, was it? <laughs> Which was how I... That's how I got into Easter House by seeing them supporting the Smiths. And yeah. I thought they were brilliant. Yes, and and and, and um, yeah, I did an interview with the guitarist who sort of had a slight, um, yes, a moment where he almost became Morrissey's guitarist after the Smiths had broke up. I think he went down for a quick rehearsal and then with Stephen Street, and then that was kind yeah. of it. Really, he was never seen. But he's well, we, sorry. We 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 went to see. He formed a band. I don't know if it was the guitarist or the singer, because it was Ivor Perry and his brother. What 
brother called Perrier, and uh, they had a band called The Cradle with Craig Gannon, who'd been in The Smiths. And we went to see them in Carlisle, and they, they were quite good, but they didn't really do it. I don't even think they released anything. Right. Uh, right. Out. And then obviously, yeah, I didn't actually know that he'd had the chance to join Morrissey, um, the, the guitarist, and it was only years later when you found out, and that must have been the connection with Craig Gannon and... You know, because he played with uh, on Morrissey's early solo stuff, didn't he? Yes, I know. It's got, well, because um, I did, and that was Ivor who I spoke to, and he said that with that tour, that he noticed that the Smiths and especially Johnny Marr was <coughs> was um, sort of watching them in the sound check, and and realised they had two guitarists, and then after that they they got Craig, and I suppose he thought it was to do with the fact that you could get a better sound, and then it meant that Johnny could do other bits, you know. During that, um, yeah, yeah, during that period. But then, I did read Morrissey's uh, book, and he he's not very kind to Craig, which is a bit of a shame. But um, there you he's go. Not, he's not very kind to anybody, though, is he? Really? <laughs> I mean, as, as much as much as we used to love him, and we did. I mean, obviously, we Morrissey was like this hero. Now he's like you just look back and you think, you know, some of the things he does now, and you know, really are awful. But you think was he actually always just like that, and you never really realised, you know, you never kind of thought, you know, because he, he sacked managers within weeks and months of them starting. He he was going to sack Andy uh, Andy Rourke, wasn't he? Yes. Uh, I, that's kind of the story behind Craig Gannon came coming in. He was going to come in to be the bass player, and then they went back on not kicking Andy Rourke out and kept Craig Gannon as the extra guitarist. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I've, I've, I, it's a kind of it's an interesting problem, <laughs> not a problem. Yeah. But, you know, I've, I've sort of gone back and watched a lot of those early interviews with Morrissey, and I still think there was this Morrissey that period, and then a very different person later on, and somehow something happens. I don't know, but I kind yeah. of feel that he was the genuine article, and he was probably a nice guy because actually, Ivor said he was really, you know, he loved hanging out with Morrissey during that period and he was so well read and he introduced him to all these you know Jermaine Greer and all these different books and different ideas and you know he didn't have anything unpleasant to say about Morrissey he just said he was a great guy and just kind of shrugged yeah. his shoulders going I don't know I don't you know what happened <laughs> <laughs> what could have happened but I don't know when you listen to him you know especially that uh, those early years in 83 84 being interviewed he was just such an incredibly interesting character. And I just, you know. Oh, he I was. Could... I mean, we did, as I said, we loved him. And, you know, we, we followed the Smiths around and saw them loads of times. And, and they were probably a major influence on the Nivens. Um, but as we say, and even, even his solo stuff, I still used to go and see him solo until maybe 2006, 2008, when he toured. Um, but then I just think he's, I don't know what's happened to him the last few years. Yeah. But I mean, think output's awful as well. You know, the, the songs are awful, which kind of doesn't help you to, to want to go and see him anymore. I know. You know? It's, it's kind of interesting. But then, you know, I did an interview with Alan White, who sort of worked with him. And actually has just come back to work with him for Vegas, the Vegas trip, for the Vegas yeah. residency, residency, which is only three dates. No, I think it's five. But um. Yeah, and I mean, you know, everyone sort of just says, oh, well, you know, it was good a good period during that very early 90s period, you know, stage and same with Stephen Street. I mean, 
they still did some really amazing work. So I think you have to slightly divorce the work from the artists sometimes. Otherwise, you could, you know, end up not liking anybody really, you know. So it's. Yeah, yeah, it is difficult. And I would still, I mean, I still love the Smiths. I'd still say the Smiths were my favorite band ever. Um, and there's a lot of these solo stuff I really liked. You know, the first three or four albums are superb. Yes, absolutely. No, I mean, his lyrics were stunning and he had a, he had something quite special. But the latter ones, are you, as you said, things, they are a bit clunky, some of them, and a bit sort of like, not quite sure, really. It doesn't have that musicality. But going back slightly, when you were growing up, were you always obsessed with music? Did you always sort of want to be in a band? Was was that kind of your driving force? Because you were the singer, weren't you? Well, you are the singer, or was it somewhere else? Yeah. Um, I don't know. I think so. I've always, I've always like really liked music. Um, my first kind of memories was uh, the music my dad liked. Would like he'd play uh, tapes when you used to have tapes in the car, and he'd yeah. be like, "Listen, Buddy Holly and Roy Orbison and Bob Dylan." And then we used to get the Reader's Digest box sets, like Sounds of the '60s, and each record would have like a different band on. And it'd be like the Kinks and the Small Faces and the Who and um, you know the Trogs and people like that. And that's what I used to. That's what I listened to. Um, and then as I kind of got into more like stuff that was around at the time, I got into the Police and then the Jam. And then that was the precursor to then getting into like as I got about sixteen, seventeen, it like the whole indie scene came along. So, what was your first? What was your first ever gig? I'm not even going to tell you because it's so awful. Oh my um, God. first good gig was the police. Um, I became a bit obsessed with the police. Um, and my dad took me to see them at um, Bingley Hall in Stafford. Um, that must have been about 1980, 81. But I, right. my first proper gig was I went with my sister to see Leo Sear. Classic. <laughs> I mean... <laughs> yes, oh, Leo. Embarrassing to say your first proper gig was Leo Sear. I uh, so I tend to, tend to try and say that my first proper gig was the police. Uh, and was, there King- bit, was there a bit of a connection with Sting and being from Newcastle? <coughs> yeah, um, Sting was my teacher. Oh my God, that was, that in the last was your teacher. Yeah, did I tell you that in the last interview or not? I can't remember. No, you didn't. Um, Sting was my teacher uh, at primary school for a year, for a whole year. He was our teacher at St. Paul's. Um, so we kind of like, obviously, he was brilliant as well. I mean, you know, when people, again, a bit like Morrissey, isn't it? When people talk about Sting, he kind of gets this bad reputation for, you know, all the, the things he says or does. I don't really know why, because I don't think he's ever said anything really bad. I think it's just... Well, I, do, I do remember there was a sort of a whole thing for decades about Sting and Bono. And I kept, and I thought, well, to be honest, they've all worse people. And then in the last 10 oh, years, yeah. and in the last yeah. 10 years, we've had, you know, Donald and, and Nigel Farage. And I kind of think, yeah, I can't really get myself worked up about hating Sting and Bono anymore. Yeah, I, don't, I think it was more just jealousy. Was, solo stuff was a bit overblown. And there was all the tantric sex thing where I think it just, it was a bit, a bit, a bit like Bono. I think there was just a bit arrogance and a bit, so people kind of, you know, looked at them as this kind of hate figure. When in reality, probably, 
he's you know neither of them are probably particularly bad at all really no. uh, i mean i think i think if either of those moved next door you'd probably go actually it's quite exciting you wouldn't go oh no we're yeah. gonna move whereas if you had someone from the you know some far right organization yeah. next door you might go actually we might move but i don't think you would move harris if bono went to move you know sort of no. knocked on your door and say oh we just moved in you know i, I hope i hope we do you know what day is, you know, the bin day or something? You'd probably go, oh, that's quite nice. You know, you'd probably tell all your friends and go, God, you know, we used to hate him, didn't we? But now we love him. I wonder if we'll get the trend. Both of them I used to really like, which is quite ironic, because obviously I liked Sting because he'd been my teacher. And then I loved the police and the police were brilliant. I mean, for a few years, the police, just every single was like really catchy and good tunes and stuff. And then I went to see them at Gateshead Stadium and you 2 were supporting. So I saw U2 very in the early days. It was like, I think they must have just released October. Um, and I just thought U2 were brilliant. So I saw U2 then, supporting the police, and then I saw them on the war tour. Um, and I quite liked them for quite a while. And then kind of then it became unfashionable to like them, didn't it? They became a bit, again, overblown with the um, Joshua Tree and all that stuff. Yeah. Well, we were I... into the Smith and stuff, and it wasn't cool to like U2 and people like that anymore. Well, I think in 87 or 80, 86, 87, I was obsessed with John Peel and was recording his show most nights and then was really into bands like Husker Du, who I thought were going to be the biggest band in the world. And so when Joshua Tree came out, I was like, oh, no, this is, you know, this is all right. But, you know, listen to Husker Du. Why does yeah. he love Husker Du? And um, then they split up in 87. So I think, you know, part of it was, I, I suppose, because like you, it was like those first two U2 albums, and there was a track called Like a Song, which I can't remember which one it was, War or Boy. I just think it's awesome, and the other ones were all good. But I suppose by the fourth album, like with most bands, we get a bit bored. So you're thinking, actually, you know, there's other other quite exciting sounds. And every week during the, seven, during the 80s, there seemed to be just, something brilliant that John Peel played that that was just new so you just thought my god have you listened to Public Enemy my god that's amazing or the Bundy yeah. Boys I know I was going about the Bundy Boys but when he first played them it was exciting and like the the Triffids or the Go-Betweens and you know bands like that and the June Brides I mean it was like yeah I mean it didn't matter if it was you 2 or, or Simple Minds it was a bit like yeah whatever they've been around for years you know sort of it's exciting stuff yeah. though. It, it's very exciting well, I, I would I was going back to your Sting period. So did, did, did you just have one year with Sting in, in the classroom? Yeah, it was, my, it was my final year at primary school. So I'd have been God, 10, eight, nine, nine years old. So it was like we, we have primary schools in the northeast and then middle schools. Oh, right, so right. It's even younger than the end of what would be a, you know, a normal people's primary school. We, that would be year five. No, year four. He'd be our teacher in year four because middle school would be year five, six, seven, and eight. Um, so it would be year four, the final year of your, like your first school. Yeah. So we were about nine years old. Uh, and he taught there for two years. He had the year above us, um, and then he had our year for a full year. And then when he left, so this was about 1976, um, he told us he was going to London to be famous. That was his exact words. He was going to London to be famous, so he was already planning on going to start a band and whatever. And he always used to play his guitar in class, and he took us to like things. He he did like um, stuff in Newcastle at the Theatre Royal, like playing in concerts and things and plays, and we'd go and watch some of them and things. 
Uh, he was he was a really interesting guy. And it's, it's, it's like when you're that age, like all the other staff at our school were female. Uh, the head teacher was a nun, Sister Mary Agnes. So you know you can imagine this young lad coming in and he was into football and music and stuff like that. Everybody just thought he was brilliant. Everybody absolutely loved him. Yes, yeah. and that's that is brilliant because we just had sort of ex servicemen who were in the navy during the war, and they had no <laughs> teaching qualifications at all, apart from being able to keep keep a very orderly classroom. And so, yeah, there was not much inspiration at school on that front. But um, yeah, because I remember around seventy six, I suppose he he was getting the police together, and I remember there was a, a singer called Cherry Vanilla, and um, she when she came over, she was part of that kind of scene in New York. And she was the first, she was an early publicist of David Bowie, which was um, and she was kind of famous because she said if anybody would um, play any of his records, she would have sex with them, and apparently she did. So she was very good at her job and very determined. But then when she became a bit of a singer, well, a singer, and then when she came to London, they had to get a band together, and they got Sting and um, Miles Copeland to um, do the backing band for her touring the country, touring the UK. All right. So it's, it's true. In fact, I did an interview with her as well, and she even sent me her book with pictures of of Sting and uh, Stuart. Um, yes, because I think it, I think Miles had sort of set that up because he was a bit of a mover and shaker as well. So, um, but obviously, yeah. eventually Sting said, "No, we're we're going to be the police, aren't we?" And there you go. That yeah, because uh, Mike Portland set up IRS Records, didn't he? He did. He did. He's he's a yeah. fascinating character because his dad was in the yeah. IRA. And when he was very young in sort of the Middle East, he became the manager of Wishbone Ash for a very short time. And then then he put on a terrible tour, which kind of lost money. Uh, not a terrible tour, but he had a he did a tour in the mid. I mean, he was really young. And in the mid 70s, he, he was putting on a kind of a package tour, including Lou Reed. And when he phoned Lou Reed, the bloke answered and said, he's in the toilet. And he said, well, that's fine. He said, yeah, but he's been there for about three days. And um, Lou never came out of the toilet and he lost loads of money. And then he starts putting on punk bands because he's quite, you know, he has, per, you know, he has perseverance, doesn't he, dear old Miles? And um he puts on, you know, the police, obviously, because of his brother. So that's kind of interesting. I did an interview with him, actually, quite recently. So he told me of his whole story. Yeah. Yeah, I think he was a, like, an interesting character because he, he obviously signed REM, didn't he, to IRS? Yeah, for six albums, I think. Yeah. So, and then, he, and, then yeah. and actually, you look at the roster for IRS records, it is absolutely boggling. But he's got a book out, as everyone does nowadays, and um, he explains it all in there with great detail. But he did just say that what made the police, and he explained, he said, because he's, he's got a brother who was a promoter in America, and he said, could you just put the band on in America, the police? And he, and he had this one gig, and the four people turned up, but one of them was quite an important person. And that was what started to get the ball rolling. And then, um, and they recorded the first album and he sort of presented it to A&M Records. And he said, look, I've, there's no cost to you. Do you want to put it out? And the bloke was like, well, I might as well, because we're not going to have to pay you any money for recording it. You've done it. And, and that was the beginning of the police. So, yeah, it was, that's how you do it. Play every gig, yeah. even, even if there's only four people in the audience. So, um, yes. So, yeah, Sting must have thought, oh, perhaps I should go back to teaching one day, probably at that stage. But the rest is history, as they say. So, yeah. no, I mean, they were. I remember when we first heard that he, like, Rocks, I think it must have been Roxanne was the first thing we ever heard. Um, it's just like, oh my God, this is like our ex teacher. 
you know, and it was like got in the charts and it was just kind of unbelievable. So most of us then started liking the police and we were, at that age, I was about what, 12, 12, 13 year old. So it was kind of just like perfect pop music that you listen to. Yes. Um, and the drum, I mean, it's just perfect. I mean, it's just great music, actually. So, so then in the, as the 80s progressed, I mean, we had that kind of early period of kind of the post-punk period with, you know, those scratchy bands. And then we had U2 and Simple Minds and Julian Co. And then 83, the Smiths came along. So you must have been just at the right age when Hand in Glove appeared. Oh, yeah. We were, I mean, we were really lucky because I think we were the perfect age. Um, I was in lower sixth, sixth form, um, and hand in glove, this charming man, and then obviously we could go and start to go and see concerts, or um, we'd go and see them, and it was just that was almost like your perfect age, aren't you? When you're kind of yes. seventeen, going up to eighteen, uh, to be into a band like the Smiths, uh, but we liked loads of bands. I mean, my first proper indie gig was probably Aztec Camera. I went to see them at Dingwalls in Newcastle, and I must have only been 16, uh, just done my O-levels. So it was a little bit... I think the Smiths were going, but I didn't really know about the Smiths, but I really liked Aztec Camera. Um, and I went to see them, and then obviously that kind of guitar, jangly guitars, led me on to... And again, like like you, started listening to John Peel around that time. And obviously, John P would always be playing the Smiths and stuff like that, and the sessions and tape. This would I'd tape the session. I've still got the tapes in the, in the shed yes, of all the uh, sessions that I used to. I, like you, you'd sit and listen to John Peel and just tape. Like every night, you'd tape a session or tape some singles you'd heard, and you know. And, and as you say, you a lot. You, you heard a lot of stuff, but you missed a lot of stuff because if you didn't hear it on John Peel, you couldn't go out and buy twenty singles. So you'd only buy maybe the two or three that you really liked and there'd be others that you didn't. Whereas I think now you could just download them all, couldn't you? <laughs> and just have the ball on your phone and listen to everything. I don't, I don't know how kids now don't just get kind of swamped by it. We had to actually buy the single. And if you bought the single because it cost you money, you'd play that and you'd get to know it. And, you know, whereas now I think you just kind of, you almost download everything and then you'd never really, it'd be hard to, pick anything you know what yeah, i mean i know well, it's a big selection i know with those trusty tdk d90 cassettes i just i mean they weren't labeled but i sometimes scribbled you know like you know some band that i thought oh yes some some indication that somewhere in that tape on that tape was was one track that i must try and sort of listen to again then scribble it on a bit of paper and then go to a record shop and say have you got this and they would go no and you go oh okay and so there was no i was like okay i'll just go out the door now and feel embarrassed and a bit self-conscious but um yeah i know that was it was a bit difficult in those days but it was also kind of vaguely fun so when did you discover your voice and you could sing because that's kind of quite a number isn't it being the front man of a band um, the other members of the band would probably tell you that i never actually discovered i could sing <laughs> 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 but I was always going to be the front man. Um, I think it was partly I, I couldn't play anything um, and I kind of had the confidence and cockiness because I think you, to be the lead singer, you've got to have that kind of um, swagger, confidence in your swagger. Yeah, and I think I was always going to be the lead singer. And it was always like my band in a way. 
Like there was, we, we started school, but there was me and Belly and another lad who used to drum who then left the band. So it was always just me and Belly and it was kind of like me and him who started it and named the band the Nivens and things. Um, so I was always just going to be the singer and I think Belly kind of, if I was going to be the singer, he'd have to be the guitarist. So he learned to play guitar. Right. And then we kind of built the band around that and got lad, other lads from school and a lad who I used to live near on the estate in Cramlin to be the drummer when the original drummer stopped um, stopped being in the band. Yes. So was it 87? Was it 87 when the band, when you started rehearsing? No, we started rehearsing in about 85. Cheesy. Um, we didn't play. We must have rehearsed for about two years before we played a gig. Rock but on. when we started rehearsing, we couldn't play anything. I mean, we couldn't do anything. You know what I mean? We were literally starting from absolute scratch. Um, so it took two years. But then when we played our first gig, which was early in 1987, um, we had a full set of songs and we played, uh, we'd do one or two covers, but it were nearly all our own stuff. Whereas I think when lads can play the guitar already or have a little bit of musical that comes, they'll do covers and they'll do a set of covers for a few and then build in their own songs. Yes. We kind of we kind of started right completely with our own songs. Um, yeah, from, I don't. From, I don't think Big Flame could have done any covers, could they? Really, their music <laughs> probably not. I think two of the uh, members didn't have much musical quality, you know, merit really. But they made a sound. Well, we, yeah, we didn't at the beginning. We just kind of like muddled our way through, and then but we'd be writing songs as we were learning to play. We always always wanted to play our own songs, um, and it's hard to do covers unless you actually can play your instruments. So the covers we do would be dead simple stuff like we used to do Sister Ray. Um, yes. Well, it's the Velvet Underground song, but we do the Joy Division version from the Still album. So at that um, stage, were you? Can you remember the first time you went into the recording studio to do the? Was your first single? Was that the Holiday Makers? That was the Flexi Disc. Yeah, that was our first proper recording. We'd done demos in a just like a lad's bedroom. He had like a Porter Studio thing, and we did. Um, which is the one that uh, I referred to earlier with Lucas Eight Orgasms and the songs that those songs kind of just disappeared. We stopped playing them live. And then when the, when they did the compilation, we didn't include any of them because they were just pretty naff really. Um, but we, re we recorded them in just a lad's bedroom. And the first proper thing we did, um, actually before the Let Loose of My Knee, the Flexi, we did Room Without Review, which was on the Cherry Red compilation. Oh. Uh, Cherry Red C87. Yes. They did box sets, and uh, the song there was uh, Room Without Review, and that was on a compilation for the gigs we used to play at were at a collective in Ashton in Northumberland, and it was a the album they put like two tracks from all the bands who were in the music collective, uh, and we put that, we put Room Without Review, which actually was probably our by far our best song at the time uh, and then we did Let Loose of My Knee and that was the first time we recorded like in a really proper studio but again that was paid for by uh, Woosh because they obviously had the money to to release the flexi so they paid for the recording. Yes and at that stage in the 80s 
There was a lot of, um, I suppose, when you're young and, and, and sort of excitable. There was not just music, but there was also film as well, which was kind of a big part of one's life. Were you sort of going through the world that was kind of Betty Blue and uh, Diva and any art house kind of, you know, stuff that we all wanted to embrace and try and make ourselves feel more sophisticated and interesting at parties? Um, kind of. We used to go, there's a really good cinema in Newcastle called the Tyneside Cinema. Uh, they used to put like old films on and um, kind of arty things. And, but a lot of it was influenced by Morrissey. So we'd go to they'd do like James Dean. Yes. Um, marathons where they'd play all three films, which even if there were three normal length films would take you about six hours. But then if you threw Giant in as well, you'd be there for about seven or eight hours. <laughs> but we'd do that. We'd go there and watch them all. Or, or sleep through them if you fear, but <laughs> things like that. So, kind of a lot, a lot of my again going back to Morrissey. I suppose you know I, I started reading Truman Capote all all on the back of him being on the cover of the Boy with the Thorn in His Side. Yeah, you know I would, and... I'd actually go and buy the books, see Oscar Wilde, you know Keats and Yeats, all the the ones that Morrissey referred to. We would go and find and you know read and you know I, I do think he opened a lot of people's eyes to like literature and film and things and characters that people you wouldn't hear of in school or you know through through normal channels yeah absolutely no absolutely did you also yeah. can you remember the first time you saw a taste of honey yes and again that was completely on the back of morrissey i think he did an interview in the nme didn't he um and he referred to it a few times and then the nme kind of um i don't know if it's the nme or another one like picked up on the fact that he'd stolen loads of lyrics from the from the play, hadn't he? Yes. Um, 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 and I remember reading it. I remember reading it before actually seeing the the, the version. Um, um, we read and again. Passionum. Yes. Yeah, yeah she was on the there was another. There was another one, wasn't there? There was a book called I Sat Down, was it? At Central Station and Cried or Wept. I think he was he was kind of influenced by that. And I think he borrowed some lyrics from that particular book as well. Elizabeth Smart. Yeah, he stole loads of his lyrics, but then that was, you know, it was, it was the way he managed to steal those lines, but then put them into songs. It was, you know, it was a, a, a massive skill in itself, wasn't it? Oh, but God, yeah, yeah, absolutely. We loved him yeah. for it. We oh, loved yeah, him back then. So there you go. So when you were sort of forming the band, was there kind of a, because during the early 80s, there was been such a lot of unemployment. And I remember, you know, there was a sort of feeling of like, well, you either, you know, going to go towards the, you know, the, the Wham and the Spandau Ballet world and Duran Duran, or you're just going to be a, a bit of an unemployed indie kid. And so obviously there was the sort of huge unemployment. There was the Job Seekers Alliance and Enterprise Alliance Scheme. So a lot of those indie bands on that early part of the decade had sort of come from that sort of world. And there was no kind of idea of much of a future really i mean you know it was all a bit grim it was like well you know we got the Falklands, then we had the minor strike and everything was kind of pretty grim at that stage so i think for quite a few people it was just like well we'll just do the band and then i don't know what whatever i just wanted by the mid to late 80s if there was a different sort of idea of being in in a band um well we when we started off we were all unemployed we were all on the door um and we'd been as well as being at the Smiths and stuff, we'd got heavily into bands like, well, Easter House, who, who we've already mentioned, but Billy Bragg and the Redskins. And we'd go to Miners Benefits. We um, 
Yeah, for like the Redskins. I remember going to see them in Sunderland at the bunker. And Did see you go Billy to the Red Wedge tour at all? Yes, I saw, well, I saw the Smiths on the Red Wedge tour. The, on, the only date they played was Newcastle. Yeah. Um, okay, they played Newcastle. Johnny Moore, I think, had done the whole tour. Uh, just doing a few Smith songs by himself. And it's, I think he did a couple of songs with Billy Bragg and stuff. And then uh, the only close one for us was City Hall at Newcastle. So we bought tickets hoping to see Johnny Marr, Billy Bragg, etc. And then the Smiths turned up and did four songs. <laughs> it was the only day on the whole tour that they did. Yes. So, but this is what when people go on about Morrissey and like all the right wing stuff and all that nonsense. You know what I mean? They were doing. Red Wedge tour. We went to Liverpool for the Derek Hatton concert. Yeah. Um, from Manchester with Love. So, you know, you couldn't get any more left wing than Derek Hatton, could you? Uh, and Smiths went and supported him by playing a gig for him. Um, it's a mystery, so, isn't it, dear old Mozart? He's a mystery to Yeah, well, well, yeah, he is a mystery. Uh, but a, a lot of that kind of formed our politics. And then obviously we were on, we were on the door when we left school um, so we could practice. You know, we, we practiced a lot because we had nothing else to do. Um, and then eventually we started doing gigs. Um, and Belly by then had got a job. Belly was working. But most of us were still unemployed. And then I went to college to, to do teacher training. Um, and we that was probably when we were most successful. When I was away and coming back, that was when we were single and all those things. Right. But then I thought, the amount of travelling and not not all being unemployed. By then, I suppose, every, I was at college and the others were all working. It just became harder and harder to have time to get together and do stuff. And then eventually we just yeah. kind of fizzled out because it became, you know, it wasn't like how it had been when we were all in Cramlet and all on the door. Yes. Uh, so, suddenly it just, life gets in the way and you have to be a bit more sensible. Did you feel, did you feel that 87 was a bit of a, benchmark year in the sense that the Smiths kind of split up so that five years where they'd been with us was so big and then that next generation of like 16 to 18 year olds come along they kind of want their own scene and then ecstasy appeared um, and then people were getting into the dance world and then 4AD were releasing things on the Pixies and throwing muses and there was that kind of slow movement towards you know you know bleach coming out on Sub pop records, you know, Nirvana's first album. You know, there was there was a sort of feeling that there was the that kind of party had that indie party of the eighties for me felt like something had closed somehow in eighty seven and things had started to shift again. I just wondered because you were around in eighty eight whether I know there were bands like the Sundays appeared who I almost thought God you kind of you kind of missed it a little bit but they were still brilliant and they did release a lot of stuff but they, it was just kind of a bit of a strange time during the late 80s and early 90s because you had you know in london you had that north north london scene of my bloody valentine and silverfish and throne muses and carter the unstoppable sex machine but you know there was such a presence from america and everyone was so excited about you know 4ad records really i just wonder what it was like being in the band sort of still having that essence of the indie world? Um, I don't know. I suppose we found there were still people who were still into all that. And, and we, were, we were big fans of My Bloody Valentine. I mean, we played with them um, at the Woosh Club and Steve Joyce was good friends with them. Um, but I, I suppose, yeah, the, what, what changed things, I think, for us was like the Stone Roses and the Happy Mondays. That came 
came along and a lot of bands wanted to jump on that bandwagon. Um, and I think we kind of like, not jumped on the bandwagon, but kind of just, that was probably the end of it. You know, we had the whole thing with the other band and the name. So we just realised that maybe our time was up, you know, our kind of jingly jangly indie was kind of at, at the end. Yeah. But then if kept with it and done the same kind of stuff, it kind of would came back around again with Brit pop and stuff, didn't it? With Oasis and, you know, back to guitar bands and things. Well, yes. I, I mean, they're... it was interesting because I did an interview with someone, God knows who, but it was in Sheffield and they were saying it was in the 80s. It was kind of every party you went to, you went, oh God, Pulp are playing. Oh, we're going to... <laughs> You know, because Pulp were just all over, you know, he said, you know, you just couldn't go anywhere without Pulp playing. And you were just like, oh dear, not them again. You know, and then a bit amazed when suddenly like, God, they're headlining Glastonbury and they'd written some good songs. So, yeah. yes, they were the band who who sort of rewrote the rules on, on sort of like keeping it going and actually getting success. Because I think most people would have gone, no, this just isn't happening, is it, Jarvis? Yeah, well, I think that, I mean, they're probably a great example of if you just keep going and doing your own thing, eventually things will come round to your way of thinking. And I think we kind of like thought we'd missed the boat with the whole baggy thing and the dance thing. And it wasn't really us. And I think it just, you know, we realised that band, like the Stone Roses went from almost nothing to being the biggest band in the world in about six months. And we were like, well, <laughs> we're wasting our time here, you know. <laughs> Uh, but the happy, the happy Mondays were the same because I remember them doing John Peel yeah, sessions and thinking, yeah, they've been around for a long time, hadn't they? And then suddenly it's like, oh, okay, so they've they've written something that's kind of quite good. So when you got this, there was a compilation that came out with good old Fire Station Records, you know, because it's I can't remember how many tracks are on it actually. There is um a lot, fifteen. So did yeah. it the case that you just got a sort of a phone call out of the blue or an, or an email? So often? um. Yeah, I got an email and it was about 2004. So that was like 14 years after we'd split up and we hadn't done anything and we'd kind of just been forgotten about completely. Um, and I got an email from you, uh, the lad in Germany, and he was just like, you used to be in the Nivens and I'm doing these compilations called um, The Sound of Leamington Spa. Oh, yes. And and he said, do you want to put yesterday on one of them? And I'm like, that sounds good. So I was like, yeah. So um, I told all the other lads, I said, oh, we're going to be on this compilation. And it was like, all right, you know, brilliant. And then obviously we were on it and we didn't think much of it. Because um, obviously it probably sold, but, you know, you're talking of, you know, a few thousand copies. Um, and then he said, would, would he's putting out, like all the whole band's collection, like of different bands he was doing and he wanted to do the Nivens. So we kind of got together, we met up and we got all photos and all the stuff together and um, collected together as many decent recordings of the tracks. Cause obviously we had no, we had none of the master tapes. So they'd all gone. So a lot of the, the stuff on the album and CD are taped from direct tapes from the studio or even just taken from the record. Right. You know, actually off the off the original records so that was he just put that all together and that was basically everything we'd done it was the single all the singles off whoosh um plus the demo tape we did and the flexi um and that was brilliant and that came out in 2006 um that is fantastic then, so because because yeah. i I'm, i kind of get the impression <coughs> from speaking to people that a lot of 
a lot of people have had a similar experience of um, if that happens, you know, like actually we've got nothing brilliant, but we've got these, you know, this flexi disc, this tape here and this, and, you know, some hopeful wizard can just in, in the studio can kind of muster together the sound and, and sort of clean it up a bit. So was it amazing to sort of hear uh, all your work on one compilation? Yeah, I mean, it, it, it was, it was, it was good because obviously we hadn't really listened to the stuff. We hadn't done it. And uh, they did, we sent them all the photos and stuff. Um, and they put like a cover together and it was very much like what the cover of yesterday had been like. It was very much like indie from the eighties. And we just thought, oh, that's rubbish. It just makes us look like this indie schmindy band. But Wilk, who's the guitarist, He's a graphic designer, so he did the the new cover, you know, the purple cover. Yes, and it's really brash and it's really good. And he did that, just threw it together and said, "Look, this is much better than the, the stuff they've done." So I, I sent the email to the lad in Germany. He was like, "Oh my god, it is! It's much better than anything we put together." <laughs> uh, so they just went with it. They just they didn't argue. They didn't want to change anything. They just went, "Yeah, that's brilliant," and that's and I think it's a really good cover. Um, and he came with it. He had the name from the demo tape as well. I hadn't even I hadn't even realised that the demo tape was called from a Northumbrian mining village comes the sound of summer until Will pointed out to me and said that's what we should call the album. And I was like, well, where'd you get that from? He said because that was the, the second demo. And I was like, oh my god, so it was. And there's obviously <laughs> he 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 made that name up, so it stuck. And that's again, that's a great name, I think. Yeah, um, it looked really good. The the, the sleeve and things and. Uh, so that, that's how it all came about. And we mm -hmm. actually played we actually played one gig in 2006, and that was my 40th. So it was going to be my 40th birthday, and we actually got back together, rehearsed, uh, and played that one gig. And, um, did you, and did you manage to sort of, I mean, yeah, the lyrics aren't too bad, though, I suppose, learning them. At least you can walk around with a bit of paper. But the guitarist and bassist and drummer must think, Actually, I'm not quite sure about those chords anymore. I didn't write them down. So did you have to rehearse much and think? Mm, yeah, that... we, we, well, we probably didn't rehearse enough. Um, we did a couple of rehearsals. And then on the day that we were actually going to play, it was just at a club in Thirsk where I used to live. And it was my birthday party, basically. So it wasn't like a, a paid gig. And they came through all day to play. And we had a set list what we'd made, and we had to like drop some of the songs from the set list because we just couldn't didn't know how to play them, couldn't remember like which you know the guitar parts and stuff. So we ended up playing about seven or eight songs and doing a couple of songs again. Um, and it was okay, but it was like I think it was you, you kind of realised that you were just unless you're going to do it properly, you're wasting your time. You can't just turn up and do stuff. Um, you, you've got to practice. You've got to put some effort into it. Yeah, um, and it was nice to do it. It was the, the compilation album was really good, obviously, to have that. Um, but we kind of then realised that you know you wouldn't do it again because it's just it's too much hassle. You're too old. You, you didn't make it the first time. You're not going to do anything really the second time, uh, other than just massage your own egos. Really, I mean, I think some of the indie bands getting back together, and you think, you know, just I don't know, just wasting their time. I don't know, but. So yeah, we just thought it was nice, but it was just it was a, oh, a kind of one. Yeah, um, but then, but then so do you have a list of all the gigs you played in all the different towns and cities in the country? I mean, did you kind of have you archived that material? Yeah, I mean, I was looking. I was actually looking through it the other week because um, I started a, a band camp shop. Oh, yeah. Um. Uh, 
um, so I'll tell you a story about the things, but basically I was looking for the flexes to see if I had any more. So I've got had two massive big boxes in the shed full of stuff. So I've got all the original posters from all the gigs and all the set lists. I've got all the letters from people used to write to us from all over the place. And I've still got all them. Oh my God, um, that's fantastic. I, yeah, I found a book uh, where I've written down every single rehearsal and every single gig. Um, so I have got a list of every single gig we ever played. Fantastic. Um, did you did you play more than you remember? Yes, we played a lot. We probably, in the end, played about 100 gigs. Um, and the ones that you remember are the things like when we, we played with the Lars at Newcastle Riverside, we played with Madbury Valentine, we played with Bob, we played with Civilian Corners. So you kind of remember the bigger gigs with better bands, etc. But then I looked at like some of the little places we played and I couldn't even remember like playing them, but obviously we did. I've I'd written it down. Um, so it was, it was quite interesting. And I found some more of the flexies, so I put them on Bandcamp. And uh, Stephen Joyce, um, the whoosh lad, he's, I'd been in touch with him and he's got two or three boxes of the Dialect Drug second single. Nice. Because, because it got withdrawn, um, he pressed 2,000 copies and I think we'd sold about half of them and then it got withdrawn. So he ended up having like 1,000 copies of it. And he said to his sister, in his sister's house, she said, she phoned him up and said, what am I doing with these? Am I just throwing them away? Um, and there's about 300 copies of the dialect drug, all brand new. I mean, brand, they've never been out the box. Um, so I put them on band camp um, and we sold, I sold about 10 on the first day. I only put one for two pounds. I put like the same price as there would have been in 1990 when it was released. Um <laughs> And we sold about 10. We haven't sold many since, but we sold about 10 on the first day and about five or six copies of the Flexi. That's um, fantastic. So how do you yeah. find your Bandcamp page? Does it come under the Nivens or Wush? It's or... the Nivens and then in brackets Northumberland, Northumberland. to yeah. kind of make sure they don't get mixed with the other ones. Um, but what happened, but we've, I don't know if you've seen, we did a poster for the release of the single, which did you get a copy of the single? No. On Optic Nerve. Well, in Optic Nerve, it, there's a postcard inside. And the postcards are designed by a lad who's from Middlesbrough, who calls himself Eugene Schlumberger. And he's like, he does, takes photographs, basically. He's a photographer. But what he does is he takes photographs and then he puts the lyrics to a band on the photo to make it look like a book. Right. And he's done a couple of Morrissey ones. He did a exhibition in Middlesbrough and he'd have like a picture of something and then like punctured bicycle on a hillside and it would be like look like a novel by Stephen Patrick Morrissey. He did a few Morrissey ones. He's done Galaxy 500 and people like that. And um, he did this exhibition. So I thought these were brilliant. So I said to him, because he's, I know, I kind of know him personally. Um, if we do a Nivens one, and I thought, well, I can't just do one for the hell of it for my own ego. But then when I knew yesterday was coming out, I said to him, oh, will you do one for yesterday? So he's done, it's just a photograph he took, and then it's got Sometimes I Lose All Sense of Time yes. as the title of the novel, and the novel's by Peter Martin, Stephen Bell, Gary Wilkinson, etc. Um, So he did this, he designed this, and I was going to get it made into a poster when the single came out. Uh, and then just give them out as promotional things. Uh, but then Optic Nerves got in touch and said, oh, we want to do a postcard. 
have you got any ideas? So I thought, well, put the two together, do the postcard for um, with Eugene's design on. So it's in the single. So it was in the single as the postcard. And then I did some posters anyway and sent them out to um, different people. I'll send, I'll send you one. Uh, if you give me your address, I'll send yes. you one. I've still got two left. So what, what, was he, what was his surname, Eugene? Schlumberger. It's a made-up name. That's not his real name. <laughs> <laughs> but he's done. He's, he's, he's not... I'm not going to say he's famous, but he's doing... He will be famous. He's doing a, a book with a bloke who designed the Hacienda. Right. And is it Peter Saville who did the sleeves? That's right, yes. For Factory, he's doing part of it, and uh, that's getting released. And he's also been doing some work with the lead singer of Sleaford Mods, right. Jason, Jason Williams. So he's, he's so getting... He's, he's kind of getting there. He's getting noticed and doing different things. But this Hacienda book's going to be quite big. It was on a crowdfunder, and it got done almost like within a month or so, because usually it takes ages for crowdfunder to get enough money to publish the book. But they managed to get the money kind of really, really quickly. Uh, so it's coming out at the end of the year. Yeah. So he's kind of getting noticed. And then obviously he's, he's done these band things and he's obviously done one of ours. So what I did was I did, th- uh, well, I was going to do 32 copies because it was 32 years since the single yes. came out. So, and get him to sign them all and numbered one of the 32. So we did that. And I've given them out to various people, members of the band, friends, up the ladder, optic nerve, uh, different people. There's a Twitter site called Indie Pop thing where they do like they make it out as if you've they put a plaque there. Right. I don't know if you've seen Twitter, have you? It's called oh, what's it called? Oh, it's it's something like Indie Pop um, Hall of Fame. That's what it is. Indie Pop Hall of Fame, and they choose different bands and they make out that they've put a plaque at a certain place they played. So they've done one for the Nivens at the Broken Doll. But obviously the Broken Doll isn't there anymore. It's been knocked down, but they're still like as if they've done it. And it's quite clever and quite funny. So I sent them a poster. Um, so I got rid of all 32, but when I got them made, I had to get 50. Yeah, I had to get 50 printed. So I've got about 15 left that I've had signed. I got UG to sign them. So they are all signed by the artist, but they're not numbered. So they're not one of the 32 numbered. So... Amazing. If you send me your address, yeah, you send me your address, I'll send you one of those. They're quite nice as well. And I put them on Bandcamp. Nobody's bought one yet. Um, I put them on Bandcamp. But then I got some T-shirts made with the design. Um, so I've sold a couple of T-shirts, which quite. Um, but the, but they're nice. I know that I'm saying they're nice, but he's such a good photographer designer that they are actually a really nice design. Even if you didn't like the band, it looks quite good. Um, so we've we've had a few of those T-shirts done. Um, so it's so with the you know because the release on optic nerve you've got the seven inch and then you've got this one called the yes the seven inch test pressing so what's the difference between the two um the test pressing they're just the make about i've got the original test pressing as well quite funnily um the 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 press four or five to make sure it works so it's like a tester but it has no (laughs) labels on uh, and they just use that to make sure that all the levels are right and that it's recorded probably before they go on to press them all. Because if there was a mistake or a glitch, they wouldn't want to press a thousand and realize it was wrong. Mm. They'll just press four or five and they'll test them all like, and make sure they all work. And if the first four or five work, then they'll go in and press the rest. And they'll give them to 
um, like the record label will have so many. So I think Optic Nerve had about three or four and they've put them on their website. Um, yeah. And you know, with the, sing- one, sorry. with the single yesterday, what, who's the, um, the black and white picture has a young woman on the front. Who's, what, what, where did that photograph come from? Well, again, that's, that was one of our like little in jokes. Um, the cover star is Stephen Joyce's mom. Right. So the, the Smiths had Utha Joyce. And we had Mrs. Joyce. No. <laughs> it was a bit of a and, but it looks like she's some kind of film star or some kind of sixties beat poet or something, doesn't it? It looks like yeah. it's a really good. Yeah. So we did it as a kind of like a Mickey take, but it kind of backfired because they just made out, oh well, you've copied the Smiths. You're trying to have like a Smith sleeve, but in reality, we were actually taking the Mick out of the Smiths in a way in ourselves. Um, and it was Stephen Joyce's mom who was on the cover. Nice. Um, quite funny but Stephen says he's got a really a different picture of his mom that's really good um we were planning on but well, not planning but kind of thinking uh that we might do a similar release for let loose of my knee the flexi and we would put her on the cover of that a different picture of her so and um, again just to kind of like where Morrissey would do with um the woman from Spend, 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 he put on a couple of sleeves, didn't he? Viv Nicholson? Viv, yes, that's right, yes. yes. He put her on a couple of sleeves, didn't he? She was on Heaven Knows I'm Miserable Now, and then she was on, I think, a Dutch version of something. Yeah. A different... That was such a... Her, her hair was such a moment, wasn't it, really? I don't know, it's... Um, well, dim... Yeah, would well, you not remember all the hoo-ha when she was on the original Heaven Knows I'm Miserable Now? And the B side of it was Suffer Little Children about the Moors murders? And people right. thought it was Myra Hindley on the cover. Um, and she does actually look a little bit like Myra Hindley with the dyed blonde hair. Um, so it caused a bit of a, a furore in the, I think the Sun ran a story about how violent, sick Morrissey was for, you know, glorifying the Moors murders and putting Myra Hindley on the cover of his single when it wasn't actually Myra Hindley. <laughs> um, yes, I know. I mean, I think I think that was when the tabloids were just, I mean, they probably would still, but they used to sort of really go for things like that. And Morrissey got so many complaints about that sort of whole Moore's murder, murder thing. So, yes, a bit of a tricky one, really, yeah. wasn't it? Yes. Never got... So it sounds, um, well, with the band camp, it does sound like the band... Even though you're, you're, you know, not going to play live anymore, it does sound like it's been quite a lot of fun having you know these two releases that have come on Fire Station and then Optic Nerve Records. Yeah, it's been it's been really good. I mean, I'm amazed. Like, I mean, doing this interview, this is my second. I did an interview last week with a lad from um, Scotland who's doing a study into indie music and um, masculinity. Nice. And Douglas from the BMX Bandits. Nice. And he's going to interview um, the other Douglas from Jesus Mary Chain, Douglas Hart. Oh, interesting. He's got other people um, that he's that he's doing. And so he's he's only a young lad. He's only kind of like 20, 21, but he's massively into all the indie stuff. And, and I did a, an interview with him. And I've done a couple of like written ones for websites and blogs. So it's quite interesting that, you know, people are still... Um, kind of interested and in, in Optic Nerve sent an email out the other day and it was um, the, they always say what they're selling and like buy these and buy this and they said uh, running out of copies of the Nivens and I think two of the others 
And I'm like, why are more people buying the Nimmons than they're buying, like, you know, the House of Love or the Wedding Present? And, like, it's, it, but they say on their own site, and I don't think they'd make it up, that they're running low of copies of the Nimmons single. So some people are going out and buying it, which is, I find fascinating that people are going out and buying the single. And and I know there's only eight copies, but it's still... There must be close to 800 people who are going out there and have bought the cop, bought the single. So how many copies, how many do they press up for a single? Just 800, they only do 800. And a mm. lot of them will be taken up because they do like a subscription. Yeah. So you subscribe the whole lot, uh, which is what I've done like for the first couple of runs. Uh, you, you, you buy them all. Um, so like like what Sub Pop used to do, Sub Pop used to do that, didn't they? They used to subscribe and then you'd get every single single. Um, so they must get quite a lot just off the people who pay for all of them. But obviously, there's some will, I think Camper Van Beethoven sold out already. Um, okay. but, but there's only two or three that they said they were running low on. Um, and we were one of them. I think the, I can't remember if it was the clouds, maybe. I mean, it's, it's just being in that company is just amazing, isn't it? You know, when people say, you know, who's on, which other bands are on, it's like the wedding present and the house of love and Camper Van Beethoven and the clouds. And, you know, the, you, you said earlier, the Sidleys. You know, and all these bands, it's, it's amazing that... Well, they've got, yeah, know, the primitives. Nibbins are included in that. The, yeah, the primitives and pulp and pop will eat itself and McCarthy. Yeah. I mean, they've, actually, they've really captured a lot of those indie bands, haven't they? Because there's quite a few as well. Like the cigarettes that I have to admit I didn't know much about. <laughs> so um, Yeah, I'd, I'd never heard of them, but then they, they've released a lot of stuff on Optic Nerve, haven't they? Yeah, and uh, one of my favourite... Sorry? I was going to say, one of my favourite bands, and this wasn't at the time, this has been years later, was the James Dean driving experience, because, uh, yeah. again, they've got a great sound, and but they yeah. never put an album out. They just put out some sing, probably quite a few, you know, four-track EPs, and, and then that was the end of the band. But, but when you listen to it, you think, God, this is great. You know, they've really captured a good sound. So um, it is pretty impressive, actually, the, the roster that he's got, and enthusiasm as well. Yeah, I mean, it's. I think it must be quite hard work to get all the things together and, you know, and trace, track the bands down and things. Um, but they seem to be, as you say, it's like really, and they're really knowledgeable. I mean, the fact that they knew about us was almost like, you know, because we were never like a big band, you know, like you mentioned, you know, people like the Sundays and, you know, bands that were massive at the time. We were kind of only had one single that made the indie charts and was didn't really play many gigs, but he knew of us and he knew yesterday. <laughs> you know, he said, oh, yeah, it's, I love yesterday and I want to put it out. But it was a bit the same, um, the lad from Germany, when he did uh, when we did the compilation, he referred to Let Loose of My Knee Flexi as his favourite flexi ever. <laughs> so it was like... Well, I know, that's, you know, that's dedication. I, I do remember when John Peel used to, you know, sort of read out, you know, a fanzine with, that included a um, flexi disc and you had to kind of send off a postal order or some stamps and you never thought you'd see anything. But, you know, fantastically, it'd often turn up and, you know, that little flexi disc was quite something really and, and same with the fanzine. Yeah. So, um, but you must have collected so much stuff and memorabilia and ephemeral. Oh, well, I've, I've bought... <clears throat> I call it a shed, but it's like a, you know, like a, like an outhouse. Yes. That you could have a garden, a summer summer house. <coughs> I bought that a couple of years ago to try to get everything out the house because I'd filled a whole room in the house 
um, with my junk, as my wife would call it. And I filled it. And to, to, to make the money to pay for the shed and to make some room, I've been selling quite right. a bit of the stuff. Um, and I've been selling it for about a year and a half and I'm still no further forward. It's still absolutely rammed with stuff. I keep opening boxes and just finding obscure tickets and demo tapes and, you know, just tons of stuff because I've collected everything since like the early 80s and there's nothing that I didn't like keep. God, so you, could, you could have an exhibition actually, couldn't you? You could do it. Yeah. But it's, it's just... Sorry. I was going to say, it was kind of interesting, though, but in the last three to four years, there's been, you know, the 80s and this indie scene has been revisited because there's, as you, you know, because at the time it happens and then we'll move on and sort of forget about it and then sort of look back at it. And I noticed there's been all these films. There was one on, you know, The Wedding Present, George Best. There's been one on The Chills, one on, um, yeah, The Go-Betweens. There's been ones on The Dolly Mixtures. I mean, and there's been quite a few books as well that have come out as well about this sort of 80 scene. And there's, yeah, I'm just looking actually, because there was another one, this guy who who was like, did this book, which is um, on Old Mutt too. And, and that came out last year, which is just kind of all the graphics from that kind of posters that was kind of not just the punk scene, but the indie scene as well. And there's lo lots of photographic books that came out as well from you know, clubs in, in America from the late 70s and early 80s. So there is something that's kind of happened that people have just thought, actually, I'll revisit it. So I could imagine a lot of the stuff that you have in your shed, someone would just go, my God, that looks incredible. Yeah, I mean, some, some of it's sold for ridiculous sums of money. And other stuff you just, you couldn't give away. It's quite funny, like, what is, like, dead collectible and what isn't. Um, what's massively collectible um, and we've already mentioned them, Sarah records. Stuff on Sarah is just absolutely ridiculous what people will pay for it mm -hmm. because they are kind of like the the biggest of all those indie labels, aren't they? Well, yes. Um, it, it turned out to be the one the one label that, um, yeah, it's just gold. It's just, and it's kind of such a global, it's a global brand. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's, I sold... The, the, remember, I don't know if you used to get the Sarah used to send out like a newsletter. Yeah, and it would have all the singles listed on. And it did the, the apparently I didn't even know this at the, the but they only ever did twelve. There was twelve of them, um, and I had all twelve in mint condition, brand new. Um, so I thought well, I'll just put these on, see what they go for, um, and they sold for absolute ridiculous sums of money to a collector in America, and they're literally just twelve if four bits of paper folded like a newsletter with the lists of the singles on that came out at the time. That's, that's basically all they are. And they're just like collectors, like just going for them, like paying loads. And like some of the Sarah flexies, I think it was Anorak City, which was on a three inch flexi or four inch flexi. It's much littler than a normal flexi. And again, you know, hundreds of pounds people pay for these things. It's just, it, it's mental. Yes, well, I think um, as people look for sort of ideas for exhibitions, I'm sure there'll be, in a few years' time, someone will do an indie exhibition of the 80s. Yeah, and, and, and if you display it well, actually, it does look quite something because there's the graphics, there's the sort of style. I mean, it's it's kind of, um, yeah, it's it kind of becomes quite a fascinating museum piece. Yeah, I mean, I would like to do, I was talking to Steve Joyce about, like, to do something like the whoosh, to do something with whoosh. I mean, I don't know if there'll be 
a big enough interest, but we've got all the stuff, like all the posters, all the records. And I've kept all my Niven stuff and all the whoosh stuff. And obviously I'm going to keep that and do something with that or do, you know, just kind of ideas you float around, don't you? But yeah, I don't know if there's much interest outside of kind of Newcastle in the Northeast. But again, you don't know, because I didn't think there'd be any interest in the Niven single. And it's obviously selling all over the place if it's yeah. nearly sold, you know? I know, I know there was one guy, and I can't remember his name now, but he seems to collect a lot of pictures and and such like, and he's been putting together a book, and I think he's working on one. And he did one about kind of the indie fashions of the 80s, and he's done various ones. And I think he's doing one on Barney Bubbles, who did the graphics in the late 70s and early 80s as well. Um, so there is kind of, there is an interest in that. And I know that, I can't remember his name now, but God, I did an interview with him years ago. But yes, they were, they were, he did a fantastic, he's done a couple of fantastic books. And one was all about the different tribes of the 80s. And again, I sort of didn't realise there were so many subsections to this, but he certainly did. I'll have to send you a link, actually, because it's kind of one of those books that you think, God, that's, that, that's what I need on Christmas Day in my stocking, yeah. just so I can spend a lot of time looking at kind of pictures of indie kids from the 80s. Anyway, there you go. Look, so look, one extra last question. If you, you know, if you had some advice to give, say, your 18, 16 to 18 year old self, you know, you, you know, if you could have said something to that person with the wisdom and the experience you've had, what is there anything that you would have just told them? You would have said, yes, do this. Um, I think, I mean, looking back, and, and it's not a regret, because I think it's, it's wrong to regret anything, but I just wish we'd kind of enjoyed it a bit more, that we'd actually just done it for the, the hell of having a, a good time and being in a band and playing with all these other bands and kind of savoured it a little bit more. Because I do think there was a, a definite element of, like, you always wanted to be, like, better than the bands you played with. There was yeah. always that kind of competition that rivalry but we always kind of wanted to the next thing so when the flexi did well we wanted the single then to do well and then the next single you wanted to do better than the last single and there was always this kind of un, kind of like almost like unrealistic idea that you were going to be famous I do genuinely think we thought we were going to be famous we were going to be on top of the pops we were going to be the next Smiths whereas at the t looking back now it would have been nicer just to have enjoyed it a bit more and had less of that kind of, you know, pressure and less of like, oh, you, you didn't like this band because they had been on the NME and you hadn't been and, you know, looking down your nose at them because they're not as good as you. And there was a, a lot of that, I think, within the indie scene from from everybody, not just us. Um, and I just think it would be nice if we just kind of all enjoyed it a little bit more and got on with other bands and rather than having that kind of, rivalry for no real reason yeah so that's be the advice i think if you're in a band i go and see bands now and a lot of the bands uh they play a club in middlesbrough called the west garth which is brilliant um and they all seem to get on with each other and like each other and you know you know you'll get a band come down from scotland and they're just like the nicest lads you've ever met and they're all dead canny with each other whereas we were a bit like we didn't like anybody else we were like you know we were going to be you know, the, the the better than everybody else. And you look like what the Mary Chain were like and loads of those bands were very kind of, you know, not particularly nice characters because there was this whole pseudo we're better than everybody else kind of thing. You know what I mean? Yeah, I think it was, it was. A lot within the whole scene in the 80s, which maybe spurred people on to be better. It maybe made people better that they, they were always in competition with each other. 
But I just sometimes think we could have probably had a better laugh and a little bit more relaxed about things. But it was definitely um, very but, tribal back in... Back yeah, it was, yeah. You know, you and, didn't like your band because they wore the wrong shoes or you didn't like your band because they were part of a different kind of scene to you. You know what I mean? Well, there was, I mean, you know, there was that scene, that time when you know, we suddenly big debate about Sonic Youth signing to a major label and it was like, my God, they're not going to do that. Surely they weren't, you know, and, you know, everyone, yeah. you know, now you think, oh, I can't believe we could be that bothered about it. But at the time it was such big news, wasn't it? And what did that really yeah. mean about Sonic Youth? And, you know, and and I remember sort of a little bit differently, I suppose, in, in the sense of I came from a, you know, a, an area which was probably mostly into a bit more heavy metal it was the countryside in east anglia um so everyone loved status quo they were the main band and you couldn't be seen to say you liked anything like the beat for who were mod because you know you're obviously going to get beaten up so it was a very tribal thing as well you know you had to pick your tribe yeah. I, I sort of obviously hated all the new romantic stuff and then all the spandle valley stuff you know and probably there's one or two singles which were quite good but you know i, I actually i'm not sure if there were but um, um, yes, but you, you know, there was a lot of kind of, no, I can't stand that band. And sometimes you secretively quite enjoyed listening to a couple of the tracks, but you wouldn't admit that, would you really? No. And like if, if a band became big or like, I remember the cult, I remember going to see the cult um, when they were Death Cult or Southern Death Cult. And then, you know, they were good. They were like a proper indie band. And when then they became the cult and suddenly you couldn't like them anymore because they were, they'd been on top of the pops and they were you know, famous and things. <laughs> and yes. that was that kind of thing, whereas only a few, six months earlier, they'd been playing Tiffany's in Newcastle and they were a proper band. Yeah, um, so it's strange. And also there was, oh, do I like goth? Should I like goth? I don't know. Yeah. I don't, I don't like, you know, I mustn't like All About Eve because they're terrible. But, you know, I think, actually, they're okay. <laughs> it didn't really matter, did it? No. So I think we, we, were, we, were very, we were very angsty decade, though, wasn't it, the 80s? Yeah. Let's say we were very angsted and, you know, it was desperate stuff. Something. Yeah. But anyway, Peter, this has been amazing. Thank you ever so much. And, um, yeah. yes, much appreciated. If you want, I can always send you the link to this. And um, you can always put it on. Do you have a Facebook page now? We have, yeah. We've got a Facebook page. Um, <clears> so <throat> put it on, on the put it on there the last time. So if you send me the link, I'll put it on. If you send me your address as well, I'll send you. Oh uh, yeah, I'll send you. The... That would be amazing. Yeah, and um, I'll send you a link to this book that I was trying to remember as well because. Yeah. Slightly blank, but yeah. Well, thank you ever so much, and all the best. And um, you know, I'm just really pleased. I'm definitely going to go and now look at your Bandcamp page with great excitement. <laughs> it's good. I'm, okay. I'm, actually, the one thing I really like is that there's a lot of archiving that goes on with this, and I think that's that's been really good because otherwise, about five years ago, this would all be just chucked in the bin, wouldn't it? Whereas actually, you know, like Cherry Red have done that you know, the C86 compilation in 70, 87, 88, 89, and even 90, you know. And, um, yeah. yeah, you know, you just think, well, that's great that someone's done it because quite a few of those have had those obscure flexi records that, you know, I'd never heard the first time or might have heard on John Peel. But, you know, it's been good. And like I said, there's been a lot of books that have come out and even films. People are now making films about it all. So um, it's, it's incredible. Yeah. And I, so I went to Manchester a couple of weeks ago to see that exhibition about factory records, um, which was quite interesting. So um, it, was, it was good to sort of, yeah, have a look at that and um, ponder life as you do. So there you go. 
Anyway, look, thank you again. This has been great. Yes. No, thank you. Thank you. So enjoyed it. Yes, that's good. Okay. Thanks, Ab, and take care of yourself and all the best. Okay. Same to you. Same Cheers. to you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. And that, dear listener, is how you end a conversation and interview. I know I love to leave it in because it all, all sounds very sort of apologetic and slightly fumbly. But then that's me. Anyway, look, a massive thank you to the one and only Peter Martin from the Nivens from Northumberland. And uh, as I said, and if you're still awake, yes, they have a single out on optic nerve bang and stuff on Bandcamp. Um, just Google away, you'll find it. And um, yes, this is the, I probably said this already as well, the C86 show. If you want to contact me, David East, or you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, just do C86 show. Make it nice and positive, otherwise you shouldn't have bothered really. And also all these interviews have been archived, aren't you lucky? It's an oral archive really. And uh, you can find those on Spotify, iTunes and Podbean. It's true. Anyway, look, have a great week. Stay safe.